Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Where KSL offers Utah deeper insights on the news. Host Boyd Matheson divides rage from reason and elevates the conversation on issues crucial to our community. On KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Of course, uh, looking at the headlines of the last 24 hours, the San Jose gunman uh, appeared to be very specific in terms of his targets, of his targeting his victims. And this always leads us to a conversation about guns, about gun control. And it comes at a very interesting time in our nation's capital when all of these things are on the agenda. Time to think again. Think you know the news of the day? Think again. Well, the timing uh, has been interesting, to say the least. Uh, of course, the tragedy coming out of San Jose yesterday, uh, just uh, no words, I think, is the only way to describe uh, those kinds of events uh, and how that takes place. Uh, but interesting that on Capitol Hill, uh, gun control advocate David Chipman, uh, who is President Joe Biden's nominee to be the director of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives, the ATF, he was in front of uh, Senate Judiciary Committee and uh, questions, uh, of course, were done in the usual round robin way they do in the Judiciary Committee, five minutes per senator. Um, and again, that's uh, the Democrats are in charge of that committee now since January. And uh, but they have been following very similar rules to to what uh, took place when the Republicans were in control of the Judiciary Committee and. Sometimes that five-minute rule is a good thing uh, because it keeps things a a little tighter. Sometimes it is a challenge. Uh, And let me tell you why before we get into the specifics of this. Sometimes you'll watch one of those committees, and if a senator knows that she or he only has five minutes, they may spend four and a half of that five minutes just talking themselves getting their social media moment or what they want to get out to the national news media or to their local news media or to their political campaign so they can raise some funds off of that. And so sometimes you end up with a senator just talking for four and a half or even all five minutes without the witness, the person, the reason they're having this committee hearing, not being able to say a thing. Now, the reverse of that is also true. I have seen those hearings, again, broken down into those five-minute increments where the person who is appearing before the committee knows that Senator so-and-so, who may not like them or may be against their nomination, only has five minutes. 
And so they may do their own version, this nominee, of a filibuster and just answer one question very slow, very repetitively. And so sometimes you get this interesting back and forth. And part of the challenge for all of this, uh, as you know, I'm all about transparency and, and having things in front of the American people. Uh, finding the balance to that is always tricky because sometimes the fact that we are doing it in a transparent way means we have cameras and senators know where cameras are and they know what to do in front of cameras. And so sometimes it is a little bit of that back and forth. Uh, But let's dive in now into the exchanges, some of the things that took place. Again, this is David Chipman. Uh, He has a long history as a gun control advocate. He is the nominee from President Joe Biden to be the director of the ATF, and uh, he appeared before the Senate Judiciary Committee. And and let's start with Senator Tom Cotton. Uh, he asked uh, Mr. Chipman, again, the ATF nominee, uh, about some of his past congressional testimony uh, in terms of uh, his desire to have a ban on assault weapons. I was sharing with you my knowledge of a program in which ATF has defined this term, um, and it is in the Demand Letter 3 program, And that rifle is a semi-automatic rifle capable of accepting a detachable magazine with a round greater than a 22 caliber. And in those cases, firearms dealers on the southwest border are required to make a multiple sale report to ATF. I'm amazed that that might be the definition of assault weapon. That would basically cover every single modern sporting rifle in America today. Um, Let me put it this way. If I wanted to buy an assault weapon and I walked into Walmart or Cabela's or some other firearm dealers and I looked up on the wall where they were labeling their weapons, would there be a label on the wall for assault weapon? Um, I don't believe, um, Senator, and thank you for this question, that the firearms industry has used the term assault rifle in their marketing um, since there was a ban on it. Uh, It was after that that they changed uh, their use of the term assault rifle to the modern sporting rifle. Well, so I've been in Walmarts and I've been in Cabela's and I've seen that you can find sections for, for pistols or handguns or for shotguns or for rifles because those are actual kinds of firearms. I think our exchange here illustrates that there really is no such thing as an assault weapon. That is a term that was manufactured by liberal lawyers and pollsters in Washington to try to scare the American people into believing that the government should confiscate weapons that are wildly popular for millions of Americans to defend themselves and their families and their homes. All right, so that was an exchange between uh, Senator Tom Cotton and uh, Mr. Chipman. Uh, Let's go on to uh, Senator Marsha Blackburn, a Republican from Tennessee. She actually read back testimony uh, from earlier congressional hearings uh, where Mr. Chipman had advocated Uh, for some of the things in terms of registration of firearms. And I'm quoting you. Instead, we should regulate a broader class of firearms, including assault weapons manufactured before the law's enactment. One option would be to require the registration of all existing assault weapons under the National Firearms Act while banning the future manufacture and sale of these firearms. So in these statements... You're talking about expanding the National Firearms Act, correct? Yes, ma'am. Okay. So that would not be enforcing it as it is written. That would be a change of policy. And then you would ban 
the future manufacturer. That would be a change of policy. Banning the sale would be a change of policy. And in these statements, and going back to that hearing, you were referring to common semi-automatic firearms when you speak of assault weapons, correct? Senator, in this hearing, I was acting as an advocate and was asked to propose solutions to complex problems. And you as were the referring to semi-automatic weapons, correct? Yes, Senator, but yes. as director... All right, and you can get a sense of the back and forth and some of the things that are going on there. I want to close out uh, this think again uh, with something from Senator John Cornyn. Uh, he asked Mr. Chipman about whether, uh, what about the law-abiding gun owners uh, and uh, what this means for them, and how does this put us in position to do the right thing in a bigger picture scale? Is a uh, law-abiding gun owner a threat to public safety, in your view? If the term law-abiding means someone has lawfully possessed a gun, there are often occasions that that person then goes on to commit a violent crime. Uh, if you're just saying um, characterize the um, majority of gun owners, the majority of gun owners are law-abiding. All right, so that's just a, a real quick feel and flavor for what uh, took place in the Judiciary Committee uh, dealing with uh, Mr. Chipman, his nomination to, to the ATF. But it, it brings us to this area of gun and gun safety, gun laws. And the, the interesting thing to me and the thing that I think we have to think again about uh, was what John Cornyn, uh, senator from Texas, was raising in terms of if someone is a law-abiding citizen, if, if the head of the ATF has a bias against them, uh, as a threat to public safety because they own a gun, uh, that creates a really interesting bias. It also creates uh, opportunities for people inside of agencies uh, to target certain people just based on an attribute. Uh, we got to be really careful about that. Uh, there's all kinds of problems. If there is suddenly a mindset of anyone who owns a gun is a threat, uh, that's a problem. Uh, and so we're going to continue uh, over the next uh, several weeks here to to get down into this. There are so many things we need to talk about in terms of red flag laws, uh, responsible, proper uh, kinds of things in terms of background checks and loopholes at gun shows and all of those things. Uh, it's a very complicated and complex thing. But the one thing we cannot do uh, is allow those who do follow the law to suddenly be targeted by those who enforce the law. Think about that. With Lloyd Matheson on KSL News Radio. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office to meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.